This week, Envision discussing possible new money drop-down transaction, Cooper Standard exploring balance sheet options with Goldman, Transocean, Valeris report earnings, analysis of 2020-2021 Chapter 11 plan recoveries. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Julian Boulaun. For this week's Deep Dive, we feature a webinar replay where EMEA Managing Editor Luca Rossi speaks with Antonio Casari of Northlight and Bruce Bell of Latham & Watkins about the European stressed and distressed credit market outlook for 2022, including how governments and central banks' policies are strongly influencing investors' decisions. It's Friday, February 25th. Reorg reported this week that Envision Healthcare is in discussions with prospective investors, including Oaktree Capital, Apollo Global Management, and HPS Investment Partners, regarding a potential new money transaction that contemplates moving assets away from the restricted group and raising debt at the new entity, according to sources. Ambulatory Surgery Center business Amsurge is a possible target asset. Meanwhile, PIMCO, as a significant term lender to the physician staffing company, has reportedly exited an ad hoc group of lenders advised by Jones Day and Guggenheim Securities to engage with Envision Healthcare directly, suggesting existing term lenders' interests are not aligned. The company, which was acquired by KKR in 2018 in a transaction valued at $9.9 billion, is reportedly working with PJT partners Alvarez and Marcel and Kirkland and Ellis to explore balance sheet options and operational improvements. Sources said that the transaction could help the sponsor realize the value of its equity investment to the detriment of the first lien term loan lenders by shifting collateral to a different debt bucket. Sources also said that a new money transaction would give Envision and its sponsor more time to turn around the physician staffing company, which has been burning cash amid rate pressure from insurance companies, a labor shortage, prolonged effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, and uncertainties related to implementation of the No Surprises Act. Reorg reported on Thursday that automotive supplier Cooper Standard is working with Goldman Sachs and Centerview Partners to explore balance sheet options. The discussions may be related to the company's term loan B, which goes current in the fourth quarter, sources said. Management said on its fourth quarter earnings call that it planned to tap markets later this year to refinance its term loan B due 2023. Discussions could also include the company's 13% senior secured notes due 2024, which become callable starting in June, sources added. Management also said during the earnings call that it had not hired advisors and was in conversations with the core banking group that have been the company's longtime partners. The company, which has been under consistent pressure in recent quarters, released fourth quarter 2021 earnings on February 17th, reporting that revenue declined 13.7% year over year and adjusted EBITDA totaled $2 million during the period, down from $57 million at the same time last year. The company attributed the most recent results to a mix of unfavorable volume associated with ongoing supply chain disruptions and high material costs, as well as higher wages and inflation. Offshore rig contractors Transocean and Valeris were among companies reporting fourth quarter results this week, with Transocean disclosing total contract drilling revenue of $621 million, down 0.8% sequentially and down 10% year over year. Transocean reported third quarter adjusted EBITDA increased 2% quarter over quarter to $250 million. Transocean noted that the drop in fourth quarter contract drilling revenue was due primarily to lower revenue efficiency and a rig that was idle in the fourth quarter, partially offset by two previously idle rigs that returned to work in the fourth quarter. On the earnings call, CEO Jeremy Thigpen said that he is encouraged by the current market and by the trends that are developing, with current commodity prices well above most offshore project breakevens. Thigpen said that oil demand is expected to exceed pre-pandemic highs this year and that the upper trajectory of day rates is expected to accelerate. Management also noted it was encouraged by the consideration it was seeing in the industry, which it suggested would enhance overall industry health. 
Polaris, for its part, disclosed about $306 million of fourth quarter 2021 revenue, down 6.5% sequentially from about $327 million in the third quarter. The company reported $2.7 million of adjusted EBITDA, down sequentially from about $30 million in the third quarter. Adding back reactivation costs, Valeris reported EBITDA of about $40 million in the fourth quarter, down sequentially from about $49 million in the third quarter. The company's fourth quarter results fell short of its revenue and adjusted EBITDA guidance, though its adjusted EBITDA performance slightly exceeded its guidance. On the call, Valeris CEO Anton Debowitz reiterated that the company is in a high reactivation cost transitional period that will extend into the second quarter. The company is bringing drill ships DS4, DS9, and DS16, and semi-submersible DPS1 back to its active fleet. With $100 million of combined annual adjusted EBITDA expected from these rigs upon their contract initiations, which are expected to start in May and June, Debowitz emphasized his expectation that financial results will improve meaningfully. Reorg this week published an analysis of Chapter 11 plan recoveries in 2020 and 2021 cases, showing that recoveries improved on average for all claim holders by 7% to 20%, depending on the class of claims. Senior creditors received a greater portion of recoveries in either cash or debt from debtors that filed for Chapter 11 in 2021, as compared with a larger percentage of these claims receiving equity in reorganized companies in 2020 cases. Junior stakeholders also received improved recoveries in 2021, on average, including pre-petition equity holders. In 2020, equity recoveries were largely provided in the form of warrants struck at values that exceeded pre-petition debt levels. However, equity holders' recoveries in 2021 cases included a larger number of stakeholders having pre-petition shares reinstated or receiving reorganized equity as part of Chapter 11 plans. Average recoveries as provided in debtors' disclosure statements and calculated at plan value improved for all classes of claims from 2020 to 2021. Median recoveries improved year over year for all classes of claims other than third lien debt. The case data used to prepare this analysis will soon be incorporated into our new Credit Cloud tool, which enables our users to analyze and query leverage finance and restructuring data. If you are interested in accessing the full analysis or want to learn more about Credit Cloud, please reach out to a reorg representative. Top red stories this week included Harbinger Light Squared $2 billion fraud suit awaits motion to dismiss ruling. Sun Edison 2L lenders accuse agent arranger DBSI of filing doomed NY suit to intimidate witnesses in California fraud case against DBSI. Public filings by Shandong Ruyi Technology Group suggest Lycra Chinese assets being moved to Foshan Lycra joint venture. Cancellation of royalty payments to UK entity increasing Foshan Lycra EBITDA. Leakage to 28.6% minority stake. Intelsat plan goes effective February 23rd. Now, here's Kathy from Los Angeles with the week ahead. Hello, everyone. Today is Friday, February 25th with the week ahead, another heavy week of earnings. Turning first to court matters, there will be two hearings in Acina Retail next week. First, on Tuesday, March 1st, for a status conference on fee issues related to the debtor's confirmation of their plan as modified in accordance with the district court's decision in validating third-party releases. The Acina Retail debtors will return to court on Thursday, March 3rd, for a hearing on confirmation of their modified plan. On Wednesday, March 2nd, the Purdue Pharma debtors will be in court for another extension of the litigation injunction barring opioid-related litigation to March 23 to facilitate ongoing mediation between the Sackler family and states appealing the confirmation order. As for earnings, we will see earnings report from Party City, Endo International, and Gulfport Energy on Monday, February 28th, followed by ADT and AMC Entertainment on Tuesday, March 1st. Victoria's Secret will report their earnings on Wednesday, March 2nd, 
with National City Media doing the same on Thursday, March 3rd. For all earnings, dates, and times, please see our weekly calendar. That's it from me from Los Angeles, where this weekend will mark the last few days of Black History Month with this year's theme of Black health and wellness. So remember to celebrate and commemorate this part of our history. In honor of that spirit, here's an interesting fact. Black History Month first began about 100 years ago in 1926 as a week-long celebration in February coinciding with the February birthdays of anti-slavery U.S. President Abraham Lincoln and abolitionist leader Frederick Douglass. President Gerald Ford recognized Black History Month in 1976. Back to you in New York. For this week's Deep Dive, we feature a webinar replay where AMIA Managing Editor Luca Rossi speaks with Antonio Casari of Northlight and Bruce Bell of Latham & Watkins about the European stressed and distressed credit market outlook for 2022, including how governments and central banks' policies are strongly influencing investors' decisions. My name is Luca Rossi. I am the managing editor of uh, Reorg Europe Distressed Debt Team, and I'm pleased today to be joined by my two wonderful speakers, Bruce Bell, who is a partner in the Restructuring and Special Situations Group of Latham and Watkins. Hello, Bruce. Hi, morning, everybody. And Antonio Casari, who is a senior credit analyst at Northlight. Hey, Antonio. Hi, morning. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for, uh, for being here with us. So, right, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about 2022. So the main challenges of this year, the main opportunities of this year, the restructuring processes we are waiting to see or hoping to see maybe, and some more kind of macro dynamics. Um, we will also have a poll for our audience. So stay tuned, look at your screen because something will come up and you will have to interact. And we will have a Q&A session at the end of our chat. Please note that the replay of the webinar will be available on the real webinars and podcast page within 24 hours. So guys, I'll, I'll start with a very um, straightforward question for both of you. Uh, 2021 was a year characterized by cheap liquidity, a lot of government support, central banks accommodative policies, and uh, a lot of companies that we can now say were able to refinance the capital structures in conditions which were totally unthinkable in a pre-pandemic world. So my question is, do you think that 2022 will be kind of more of the same, or do you think things might change? And if they change, what will be the trigger for a potential new wave of restructuring processes. Antonio, do you want to start? Yes. Uh, Luca, I totally agree with you. 2021 presented probably a unique set of conditions that brought defaults to an all-time low. Just to put some numbers, we only had six issuers in the European yield market that complete a formal restructuring that triggered a default. That is for an amount of roughly 3.5 billion of defaulted debt, which is less than 1% of the total market size. In absence of extraordinary exogenous events, and by the way, we had pretty plenty of them in the last two years, but uh, it's difficult to see a, a, a change in the environment that has been supporting such a, a low default rate. So it's probably fair to assume that 2022 is going to start with uh, a profile that is not too different from uh, 
what we, we've seen in 2021. On the other hand, it's also worth mentioning that in the back end of 2021, we've started to see some warning signs, uh, mainly linked to rising input costs, which uh, uh, together with the, the ending of government support, uh, put pressure on margin for a number of companies across different sectors. Uh, and in a situation where we all know that many companies came out of uh, COVID with more level capital structure due to both cash burn during the lockdown, as well as additional debt that they raised in order to address liquidity concerns. So notwithstanding that, JP Morgan still focused a def default rate in 2022 in uh, uh, European high yield at all time low at 0.75%. Uh, honestly, I don't have a crystal ball to tell you if the number would be more or less than 1%, between 1% and 2%. I think it will be a, a low number. But on the other end, I think the warning sign that we mentioned before will create some sort of headwind, which will certainly trigger higher stress and increase the dispersion between performing and non-performing companies. And that creates certainly more opportunities on the investment side, both on the long and the short term. I think a lot of people in our market are, are really hoping for this warning signs to materialize to a certain extent. I think, the, the, honestly, the warning signs are there. I mean, <clears throat> we saw them, I mean, the, the rise in input cost has been quite unprecedented, and we see it already for, I mean, uh, reflected in weakening of, uh, of results. I mean, it is, the, the question is, would that translate into a more uh, harder impact on, on companies and would lead into a restructuring? That's a question probably that remains open. Yeah, Bruce, what do you think about this last question uh, by Antonio? And what do you think about what is what what we discussed so far? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I, there isn't a sense that there is going to be um, a major change um, imminently. Um, we did see um, it becoming slightly more difficult um, for some credits to refinance in the latter part of 2021 than it probably would have been six months um, before that. Um, I think to, to use that cliche of a, um, of a British Prime Minister of, of, of some years ago, it's that it's events, dear boy, um, events. Um, and there's plenty of scope um, for events. Um, you can see what's going on in Ukraine. Um, there's the um, risks around Taiwan. Um, we, you, you, you will have seen the inflation figures um, in the UK today. There's only so long the Bank of England can pretend that um, that's all just transitory. Um, so th there's clearly um, pressure coming down the line. Um, but but if I had a crystal ball, yeah, I I, I wouldn't be a lawyer. I'd be an investor. <laughs> I think we. That's do. why I'm an investor. <laughs> I think we all agree we don't have a crystal ball. We all also agree that inflation, geopolitical tensions, and some you know change, potential change in central bank policies might actually happen. I wanted to ask you something else, which is kind of related to what we discussed now. Uh, do you expect a sort of shift of mentalities in lenders from an A and E kind of refinancing type of mentality? which we saw a lot in 2021, 
to a more enforcement-led approach. Uh, Bruce? Um, no, I don't think, I'm, I'm not expecting a particular change um, in, in lender approach. Um, I think there is definitely a sense that um, enforcement um, is complicated, it's costly, um, it's potentially value destructive. Um, and um, so if it can be avoided, um, then people um, will prefer to do so. Um, there's obviously there's obviously a difference between, uh, depending on who is in the capital structure, um, hmm. between the more opportunity guys who, be, who may be um, uh, more willing to enforce um, versus um, par lenders. Um, but um, there's, uh, you know, for the reasons we've just described, it's, it's not clear um, when um, the opportunity investors um, come into play. Um, and there, there is definitely a sense that the, the, the preferred model at the moment is to um, stitch it up as best you can, um, package it off, and then try to make an exit um, in the secondary market thereafter, rather than um, uh, hold on to it through an enforcement process and, you know, uh, and cross your fingers as to what happens. I'd be Antonio, interested in Antonio's yeah. views. Yeah, what's your perspective on this? I agree. I don't think the mentality of investor changes. I think mm -hmm. uh, the two behavior are reflective, as Bruce said, of two different set of investors. On one side, you have, let's call it par investors or investors that are more focused in capital preservation, in the principal amount of, or, or even have constraint in, uh, in their mandate in holding some uh, instruments and therefore they are more open to give companies time and using instruments like AME or, or waivers. On the other end, I think the, the, on the other side of the spectrum, clearly more opportunistic or active investors tend to grasp more of the value that could be generated through by turning around distressed situation. But turning around clearly requires changes and those changes sometimes are only done through an enforcement because you require to change management and changing management requires changing ownership and that's where the the the, the, the different approach is uh, is reflected how the mix will uh, will be in 2022 is difficult to guess but maybe one point is uh, uh, the performance on average of uh, high yield uh, uh, investors in 2021 has been strong to very strong, <laughs> almost across the board, on the back of uh, deep value investing uh, in late 2020 on situations that were distressed after COVID and then clearly showed a, a strong bounce in performance, which led capital appreciation, tightening of credit spreads, everything went fairly well. So I think we are entering 2022 with uh, more investors that had uh, a positive outcome on their deep value investing in, uh, in 2021. So they are more willing to commit more capital and to look more opportunities to replicate the same kind of uh, uh, paradigm. So that's, that's where I think probably more situation could lean in towards a more active restructuring because people saw that it worked. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I think I, I, by talking to the market, I kind of sense the same, the same sort of pattern probably 
happening and taking place in 2022. We talked about mentality of investors, and I wanted to get a bit more about your mentality as an investor, Antonio. So where are you? I'll ask you the million dollar question. Where are you looking for returns? Like it's in the very expensive public markets, is in the private markets, is it in the non-performing loan space? Is it in primary? So, I mean, probably the answer to begin with is easier than you thought because we look at every sector in every market with every instrument that is allowed in our uh, in our mandate. So we try to be as broad as, as possible. But trying to be a little bit more specific, uh, we, we we had a, a, a we're very happy about our performance in twenty twenty one and part of the overperformance, as I mentioned in my previous answer, was driven really by exposure to distressed name that had a positive turnaround following the uh, following uh, um, following the COVID and and the lockdown uh, mm-hmm. restrictions. Uh, that was really more impactful in the first part of 2021. So of our return in the year, two thirds were roughly in the first half of 21 and one third in 22, which is almost a sign that that there is a little bit of slowing down of A, uh, the positive impact of such opportunities, which are tailing off to some extent. And Mm -hmm. the second component is really a more difficult, higher difficulty in recycling uh, uh, opportunities as one materialized and paid off is more difficult to recycle with a, a, another opportunity which, which is as attractive. Uh, that's where probably opportunities, other closed market, but private markets, loans market could, 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 could become interesting. Having said that, to be honest, there are still uh, even looking specifically at uh, secondary high yield market, there are still a number of issuers with 2022 and 23 maturities that have not been addressed. And I'm talking, for instance, Raffinery Heide, uh, Matalan, Taco, Wizink, uh, and Core Estate, or more niche, even big properties. Uh, there are some situations where advisors have been already appointed, and there is uh, a dialogue ongoing, like AYA, for instance. And the third component that I would ben- uh, would mention also are uh, restructuring that are even just completed. And I'm thinking, for instance, Codera or Naviera, where new instruments are starting to trade. And usually it takes a little bit of time for this trading instrument to find their level because you do not only uh, race-stated senior secured, but for instance, you have also big instruments with equity attached, and mm. these have a slightly different dynamic, are pretty peculiar instruments for uh, different from the standard high-yield bonds in, in our market. And then in uh, twenty, in first half of 2022, we should have also uh, Love and Play and probably also Mobi finalizing their restructuring and therefore bringing new uh, instrument into the market, so that hopefully Moby will never know. We never know no. when when it closes. That that that's the annoying part with Italian people. But <laughs> you 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 and me know more about that. Anyway, um, the that should probably keep us busy for the first part of 2022, and then uh, we hope that the 
the profile for the year in 2022 would be slightly different than 2021 with more distressed opportunities coming out in uh, in the second part of the year as opposed to the first part as, as in 21. Makes sense. Thanks, Antonio. Um, I want to ask something to our audience now. So look at your screen. Stop looking at your um, spreadsheets and uh, listen to me. We want to ask a question and we want you to vote on this question. And the question is, which sector will present the most interesting distressed opportunities in 2022? And I'll give you four options. Oil and gas, travel, real estate and construction, industrials and chemicals. So please do vote. This is our who wants to be a millionaire moment of the webinar. So let's see what people say. Panelists cannot vote. I'm very disappointed. Yeah, I was disappointed, Luca. <laughs> we can do our mini, po uh, mini poll among us. Um, <laughs> I'm going to ask you, as soon as we have some answers, we can, we can. Oh, we had a lot of votes already. Fine. Nice. Um, shall we see them? Oil and gas, 20%, travel, 30%, real estate and construction, 30%, industrial chemicals, 20%. So it seems that people think that the most interesting opportunities will be in travel, you know, it's been absolutely battered by, by COVID, but also uh, fully uh, supported, at least the big companies, by governments. And real estate and construction, um, Antonio, you mentioned core estate, and we know all the German real estate saga. What do you think, guys, about this? I mean, and do you think there will be sectors or companies in 2022 which will struggle to refi due to ESG concerns, which is another big topic of, of our time? Um, uh, as a feedback for the, the, the outcome of the survey, um, surprising to see travel. I mean, I, I thought that people perceive that travel should be on the upward trajectory or having already experienced twice how close it gets to really a distressed situation. So by now they should have a decent playbook on how to deal with the stress situation and hopefully any further uh, wave of COVID, if any, should be ma more manageable. So honestly, surprising to see to see travel. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm, mentally, I'm trying to figure it out with which name could be because clearly, I think the airlines were a potential candidate in the first lockdown. If we see their performance during the second lockdown or even during uh, the last Omicron variant, they were not very affected. Meaning that uh, investors know that the A, there is support behind, but also by now they have a, a structure that allows them to uh, cope with the, the volatility in, in, in volumes. Um, it, it's, it's interesting on the other end to see real estate there, considering that uh, in the world before Chartered Canner saga and the whole uh, Adler, Ado and Saga, it, real estate was 
a underrepresented sector in the yield market and conscious was one issuer there weren't many and all the other issuers were more investment grade very levered but still on a investment grade uh, kind of structure clearly it's uh, has become much more uh, topical in, uh, in the second part of 2021 and will continue to be uh, topical in 2022 also because as opposed probably to oil and gas where there's a long uh, uh, track record of people getting involved in hairy and difficult uh, uh, situation real estate as as uh, a playbook that's still to be written in in many instances in terms of we all say oh uh, is backed by uh real estate and uh, real properties but uh, i'm not sure at least in the yield market how much experience we really had in terms of uh, what is going to happen when one of these companies goes through a a, a, a restructuring um and then to finish off on your esg i mean i saw a, a recent survey showing that uh, it's uh people will reduce are planning to reduce their exposure to tobacco and oil and gas i mean and mm-hmm. I, i don't think tobacco is uh, that limited number of issuers at least in the high yield market also loan names probably just one come to mind which is uh, rodia aceto you know uh, exactly mm-hmm. but uh, uh, it's interesting though Uh, probably one of the sector which has ESG uh, implication and has more representation in uh, in a year is certainly gaming. Uh, but honestly, uh, this appetite for gaming. Seen, I mean, so far we've seen 2021 has been a, a a year showing great appetite from investors and great interest, uh, mainly driven by. online gaming as well as sports betting in US so a lot of transactions Caesar been bought by Flutter uh William Hill and and so on and so forth so i think clearly the multiples uh, aside from ESG the valuation multiple in the gaming sectors are going up and that should make any refinancing easier uh the question that is there a point where investor will not look at deals just because it's not ESG irrespective of evaluation that are going in the upward trajectory and that's maybe something interesting to be considered and seen before we move to some more legal question bruce any 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 thoughts about the poll and any thoughts about the sectors that you see particularly interesting compelling in 2022 um i i mean just picking up on the esg point um i mean there, there clearly are esg pressures and um, investors have esg pressures um upon them um and there are th- there are some things that are becoming um increasingly difficult um to finance um you're seeing that i think come around um less so in the public market um and more in the private um debt space 
um, where, where there are um, things, opportunities that are being shown around um, and people are trying to work out whether they can do. Um, I think that um, a number of those names are names that essentially the public market just can't touch. Um, and so I'm thinking in particular there around you know, coal assets um, mm. um, where the private guys um, have perhaps a bit more opportunity. Um, I, I see Antonio's point um, about um, or going back to the poll on travel. Um, um, but at the same time, I mean, for example, you know, we, we can see that Genting Hong Kong um, filed in um, Asia. Um, so I think, I think people are thinking there's still some, um, some pain that has not yet um, fully been priced in or worked through um, in some of those bits. Interesting. Thanks, Bruce. And thanks, Antonio. Um, let's talk about some um, legal matters now. Um, so I think in 2021, according to my limited experience, uh, we have seen quite a lot of judicial activism. So we have seen situations like Amigo loans or hurricane energies where schemes were not sanctioned. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, Bruce, do you think this is kind of, this is something that will continue in 2022 or it was more a function of practitioners testing the boundaries of what can be done and what cannot be done? Um, look, it's an interesting question. Um, I, there's, there's always a bit of um, uh, boundary testing. Um, that's, what, um, that's what we've been doing, um, particularly around schemes of arrangement for probably 10, if not um, 15 years. Um, and I think if you if you asked people um, ten or twelve years ago um, whether they thought some of the structures that that have been used and and have been passed um, would have been acceptable, I think they would um, they would have raised an eyebrow. So so th there's always been um, uh, boundary pushing. Um, I, I think one can make a bit too much of um, the idea of there being a sort of, you know, a, a, a trend towards um, more judicial activism. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I think, and it's probably here, it's worth separating restructuring plans um, from schemes. Um, restructuring plans are obviously, were obviously pretty new. Um, there was always going to need to be um, a testing um, of the process. Um, there was always probably going to be um, one um, that got pushed back um, um, in a new process like that. I think that that was um, inevitable. Um, I think um, I think Amigo Loans is a slightly different case. Um, I think it's quite specific to its facts. Um, I also think that it's worth distinguishing between um, processes that involve um, financial investors, whether that's that's debt or or equity, um, because obviously you know, it, it was the equity that complained about Hurricane Energy, um, and processes that um, involve consumers, um, which um, Amigo Loans was obviously an example of. And I think the judicial concerns that arise in cases around consumers are a bit different. Um, that being said, um, I think there probably is a bit of um, the judges saying, look, you had it pretty easy on schemes um, for quite a long period of time. Um, restructuring plans have a considerably more draconian power within them in the um, cross-class um, cram down, which I've been trying to practice um, all morning so that I could say that. Um, and, um, it's, uh, and I think that has... Um, 
caused them to say, look, you need, you need to be a bit careful here because the fact that it was okay under a scheme under which by definition every class consented um, doesn't mean um, that it's the same in a restructuring plan, particularly where you're using cram down, because by definition, not all classes will have crammed down. I don't not all classes will have consented, pardon me. Um, and so the and so the considerations are different. Um, and um, and I think that um, they have uh, they have wanted to make that clear to people. Um, uh, do I think that there will be a lot more of that um, during the course of the year? I'm, I don't uh, not unless we have um, quite a lot. Uh, we're going to need a lot more restructurings um, to begin with, right? Um, we're going to, mm -hmm. you know, uh, for that to happen. Um, but I think that they, I think that the judiciary is quite keen that this be a predictable process. So I, I don't think there's a desire to have lots of failed restructuring plans or schemes. That, that's interesting. Um, we mentioned the Migolons. Let's just remind our viewers uh, we're going to have another webinar on that on the 9th of, of February. Um, and, and Bruce, you talked about a lot of processes, a lot of things that needed to be tested, right? And uh, when I consider, when I think about a cross-border um, cross debtor at the moment, I see that there are a lot of new tools. Uh, mm -hmm. The uh, French accelerated as SFA, the German scheme, the Dutch scheme, for example. Uh, do, do you think that this, all these new uh, tools will be used more often in 2022 uh, in a kind of a post-Brexit world? Uh, again, an interesting question um, and much speculated on, obviously, um, in the market. Um, I, I think that the, I think in terms of a post-Brexit effect, um, I don't think I, I think that will burn over a much longer period. I don't think you're going to see um, a sudden turnaround um, in 2022. Um, I think it's it's obviously good to have um, more tools in the toolkit um, that we can use, um, um, but. Building on what um, I was saying previously, I mean, particularly in cases that involve um, financial investors, um, um, predictability um, is is quite a key thing, and um, and there is obviously going to be a concern in relation to new processes um, as to quite how things will pan out. Uh, no one really wants to be the first, um, and so uh, the. The desire to fall back on tried and trusted um, processes that have always delivered for you um, in the past, um, particularly processes um, that are relatively easy um, to access, uh, I think is going to continue. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, um, and we've we've seen that um, you know in cases recently where um, you know um, investors have been quite clear that that is the process that they would would prefer to use because they understand how much it costs and they understand how it pans out um, and they have less clarity on some of the other processes. Um, some of those some of those other processes, I mean the Dutch in particular, for example, they've they've um, they've got, tried to go a long way. Um, to reassure people on that. So you've got a specialist bench of judges um, and that sort of thing. Um, I think that there is going to need to be um, a build-up of domestic track record um, before uh, in cross-border cases um, they get used um, too often, um, frankly. Um, uh, but look, there's going to be pressure on people to use them because governments have spent time legislating for these things. Um, so um, so I, I don't doubt that there will be pressure to use them.
Interesting. Uh, last question for you, Bruce. Um, I think, so do you expect companies to use, um, I'm thinking about Virgin Active, right? Do you think, mm -hmm. do you expect companies to use restructuring plans to um, compromise leaves, leaves, uh, lease obligations instead of using like CVAs? Of course, it would be, this would be in order to um, use the cross-class cramdown to bind yeah. landlords uh, without their consent. Do you think that that could be kind of a trend in, in during this year? Um, yes, I think it could. Um, uh, I think there are a number of um, aspects to the restructuring plan that make it superior um, to CVA. Um, uh, and uh, and that all focuses around the fact that you, you're it, it's done in front of a judge. Um, you're getting a, ju a judicial determination um, of the matter. Um, that gives people an opportunity to be heard. So I think you know, it, it, it's giving people a forum um, before the plan um, has been um, um, voted on and approved um, to uh, air their grievances. Um, yeah. And I think it gives much greater certainty um, about the process then going forward. Um, the, the big problem with CVAs is that you've got this, you know, you've got this long tail risk um, on challenge. Um, and um, that's something that New Look, for example, um, um, has, have, has been having to deal with um, post um, its CVA. Um, and, uh, and obviously you can challenge a restructuring plan, but the um, you know, post sanction, but um, that's going to be much more limited. Um, there's always going to be a bit of gaming of the, the, the two processes to see which you think um, fits better. Um, uh, you, you know, there'll be some cases where actually you might feel that, that you would rather not have the argument um, about um, cross-class um, cram down. And so, you, and if you've got your 75%, um, you might take the risk on unfair prejudice and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, um, but my guess is that the, the, the restructuring plan probably will um, start to replace um, the CVA because I just, yeah, I just think it's it's a superior process, um, and it provides greater certainty for people. Greater certainty, and greater clarity, probably, unless yeah, fail risk as you as you just mentioned. Cool. I think we need to leave some room for the audience now to ask some questions. Um, so everyone who is attending our webinar is now free to ask a question, and we will try to answer it in the best way possible. So any any question from the audience? Let's see. I, I, Luca, am I allowed to ask Antonio a question? Of course, of course. <laughs> um, so just picking up on, um, on, on what we were talking about, about cross-border case, I mean, uh, Antonio, how do you feel as an investor about um, that um, that difference between a sort of tried and trusted process um, in the UK that you're familiar with versus um, a, a, a newer process in another jurisdiction. Is, is that something you, uh, you particularly care about or are you pretty agnostic? Uh, it's, it, it's just, as you mentioned, it's not being tested in many other jurisdictions. Uh, personally, I think Luke and I have some experience in terms of Italian process, which proved to be super difficult. So yeah. probably everyone would love to have the option to actually deal with that in a more effective jurisdiction. But uh, uh, it's, 
it, it happened differently. Um, regarding uh, other jurisdictions, clearly Germany is coming with uh, something that is, I've been told, but I haven't tested it, fairly comparable to a scheme. Yeah. Uh, it's a matter of, uh, I think the ultimate goal is for investors to be agnostic. Yeah. I don't think we are there yet because the, the processes in other countries are not tested enough for people to be agnostic. So there will be a, a, an inclination, uh, at least at the beginning, to come back to a more uh, tested ground and explore the, the, the new grounds only if, if necessary. We got a question from the audience, guys, which is something we touched upon a bit earlier, uh, but it probably would be good to kind of, you know, dig into that a bit more. The question is, would the tailing off of government support across Europe and the UK represent a potential cliff edge for companies? Who wants to, who wants to go first? My initial reaction is it shouldn't because the government support was not meant to put that kind of pressure. So I would assume that if government support is not in the position to be fully repaid within the timeline initially envisaged, there should be flexibility from the government side in considering uh, how to deal with uh, rearrange the maturity or to to make it to to adapt it to a, a a situation which is clearly different from when it was uh, planned but having said that honestly it seems to me that uh, we nobody was expecting a full recovery before 2022 so okay. It's a question, it's really, the judge is still out in terms of, it, it will be a matter of seeing really if 22 is becoming a more normalized year and therefore more comparable to 2019 level for many companies and uh, or if there is uh, further delays or further curveballs in, in the year and therefore companies needing more time. But honestly, I cannot see uh, government support being the trigger, then uh, and then having potentially cross the fold and making the whole uh, uh, set of cards crumble. So certainly not the first mover in this respect. I don't know what Bruce thinks. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I mean, some of it obviously has already been withdrawn, right? I mean, in the UK, the COVID corporate finance facility was, uh, you know, has effectively run out. Um, there is uh, government support has, uh, has taken more forms than simply um, handing over cash. And um, we've had, um, for example, in Spain, you've had the, um, the moratorium on um, being required to file for insolvency as a result of negative equity. Um, in the UK, um, we've had um, the moratoriums um, on uh, rent enforcement. Um, and those it's interesting that those latter things actually keep getting extended. <laughs> um, and um, so, um, so in that sense, it's quite clear that governments don't want 
um, the withdrawal of support to cause um, a cliff edge. Now, at some point, you're going to have to normalize these things. Um, but then they said that about um, interest rates after the global financial crisis, didn't they? And you know, <laughs> only and, now do we yeah, see any and, changes. So, and to be honest, also I was thinking about the the idea of also loans that had been extended by the government to companies and somehow some at some point need to be repaid. That yeah. maturity, I don't think it 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 will create some cliff edge as well because. Uh, if the companies are not in the position to go in the market and refinance a government loan with a market instrument, the government has to be flexible in this respect. I mean, um, Luca, I see we've had a, a sort of linked question about whether the UK government could fall into a separate class of creditors um, uh, in a part 26. Um, it's an interesting I, I, one because I guess it's a bit of uncharted waters for it, it is, although there's no reason why the UK government should do it, it, it. It's not going to be a separate in a separate class simply because it's the government, I think, is the mm -hmm. um, is the key point. Um, uh, there may be features of whatever the UK government has done that might cause it to be in a in a separate class. But I don't. But, that, but it's not because it's the government, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah. That will be um, features that would cause any other creditor um, to be in a separate class. So, um, so I don't think I, I, it, not because it's the UK government. I think is the um, is is the, the the short answer. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, we're getting quite a lot of questions. Let's let's try to answer this one. Can you, and maybe this is for you, um, Antonio, can you elaborate on why don't we think oil and gas will be a big sector in 2022? Um, current oil price in, in simple terms. I mean, we're starting from a high oil price at the moment. So, and forecast are not expecting a, the price to, to drop or and uh, I think it's uh, probably a long enough time or high oil price should have put the companies in the position of being uh, uh, less levered and having some liquidity and some uh, uh, protection in terms of built and, and to, to cope with uh, uh, more uh, difficult times. Yeah. Okay, let's let's try to answer this, this other question um, from one of our guests. So if we emerge from a post-COVID environment, uh, we would, uh, our guest would like to hear our thoughts around the place of valuations in restructuring. So valuations are clearly important. It's going to be probably, it's going to be more difficult. There will be more challenges around valuation. A traditional valuation uh, basis past data might have been stretched by the dislocation caused by the pandemic. So valuation in a, in a, in a kind of a post-pandemic world, how will that, how will that change post-restructurings? Who, who wants to, who wants to go? Which I mean, shall I take it from a sort of legal yeah. um, aspect to begin with? Um, I mean, the, the, the place of valuations within um, the restructuring plan process is obviously something that, that has been subject to quite a bit of speculation. Um, um, and um, people, folks would have seen what happened on um, um, Smile Telecom um, 
just this week where the, the judge has heard um, and accepted um, valuation evidence. Um, and um, I, I, I still get the sense that um, English judges are not going to be as enthused um, about getting involved in valuation arguments um, as their American um, colleagues um, have been. Um, uh, uh, but I accept the point, and I think it must be right, that valuation, or that, that Antonio comments on this in a second, valuation must be a lot harder um, when um, everything has been skewed um, by, uh, by COVID. Um, I mean, my, my personal view is I think that's why actually um, the market test remains um, the best um, evidence um, for valuation and that actually running um, a sales process um, is worth it. I'm, I'm conscious that um, Mr. Justice Snowden said that it, it, was, not, um, it was not an absolute requirement um, in Virgin Active, but it does seem to me that um, that, that provides a much more um, convincing um, analysis of valuation than, than having lots of experts trying to um, stand off doing Monte Carlo simulations and the like. Makes sense. Thanks. Thanks um, for listening. Yeah, Antonio. I see why it could be harder, but also I see the point of having been tested on what the downside is in terms of we probably had evidence of what happens to companies that were exposed to a level of stress that was very, very difficult to model before March 2020. So mm -hmm. when we have question in terms of the sustainability of a capital structure that's coming out of a restructuring, I think people will be able to have more tools in order to understand what really could be the rock bottom EBITDA of a company, what could be the amount of cash required to fund a period of distress, and that's that's component. So yes, it's uh, the, clearly COVID broke a, a, a line, which is not a, a, anymore a straight line, that there is a big uh break in, in in between but but also provided i think valuable uh insight around the valuations of the company and uh, and how credible is uh, a, a plan particularly on the downside side makes sense thanks antonio uh there is another one for bruce um yeah. and let's 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 go for this one will the cost element of rps effectively price out mid-sized firms smes forcing them to still rely on the cheaper but less decisive cva yeah i mean that's it's a very interesting question um uh i mean there's clearly a risk of that um um the restructuring plan process has come um, with a lot of the scheme architecture um, attached to it. Um, and um, although um, various comments um, were made by the judges right at the start when it first um, came out that um, they would like the documentation to be short and sweet, um, uh, it, it, you know, unfortunately, um, that, it, it, that's just quite hard because there is a, there is a tendency um, to want to make sure that you have been um, fully comprehensive in 
um, describing the deal, in papering the deal, um, and that meant has meant that they've it's followed schemes of arrangement, um, and they are, there is no doubt that that's much more expensive um, than a CVA process, a lot of which is, is drafted by um, the nominee. Um, so I think there's definitely a risk of that. It, it, it would be nice if there was a solution to it, um, because I think it would be advantageous for um, the mid-market to be able to access restructuring plans. Um, uh, but I don't have an answer as to quite how we do that. Um, so, yeah. I, so I think there is a definite risk of that. Interesting. Thanks, Bruce. I have actually uh, one, one for Antonio, which I was thinking about earlier when we were talking about COVID funding. This year, I've seen some, of, some new structures with, with peak element, peak hold co element structure, plus the new kind of copy debt funding. And it reminded me of 2006 to a certain extent. So this big structure with a lot of further leverage, uh, which has been put on on top of all deals. Do you think that could be one of the risks that could trigger potentially new restructuring processes either this year and then in the next few years, Antonio? Um, I would separate the two things. Clearly, I think and a couple of instances come to mind. Uh, CSI as a pick uh, and recently same sponsor paid themselves a dividend on uh, GameNet doing a whole copic. Uh, I think these are a statement of uh, how buoyant the high yield market is and uh, people are willing to uh, go down the uh, credit quality or exposed to more junior instrument in order to uh, get the, the target yield. Maybe also because we one of the features that we haven't discussed, but will certainly be there in 2022, is the fact that uh, people are more reluctant now to achieve yield by extending maturity, by getting exposure to duration. People are more uh, concerned about duration due to the dynamics in rates. So they will be forced to look at uh, getting the same yield with shorter duration uh, instrument. And that inevitably go means going down in terms of credit quality. So on, on situations like gaming that had uh, was very impacted by uh, lockdown, the moment the, the, the market saw that uh, uh, understood that there was uh, a process of reopening and the performance was rebounding. I mean, certainly they were very quick in uh, printing uh, these that funded uh, uh, dividends for the sponsors. Um, are they going to drive more restructuring? Uh, maybe, but we have to be aware that these instruments have very little teeth in terms of mm -hmm. when they are, they have at best some uh, uh, some uh, some pledge on the whole co-shares, but most of the time they don't have cross default. So the pick could yeah. be in default, but the, and honestly, it's also difficult to envisage how a pick, which has uh, in current uh, covenants, uh, not maintenance covenants, uh, does not pay interest in cash, but because definitely it is big, 
how can trigger a default there? So these are situations where unfortunately, I think if you see the underlying company, the credit quality there deteriorating, you have very little teeth and uh, angle in order to become part of it. So I, I, I don't think, I, I, I struggle to see a catalyst coming from this new instrument into the uh, into Opco to trigger a, a, a restructuring. Having said that, they are definitely a sign of a overheated market and uh, yeah. clearly overheated market can, uh, can lead to some- Can be a trigger. Yeah. Um, I'm just uh, conscious of time. We have, we have only uh, room for one or two more questions. I'll go with this one, which is mainly for Bruce. So there is a lack of harmonization around legislative measures across Europe, around director's duties. And um, our viewer is asking, does this not put directors in cross-border groups under real pressure? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, the lack of harmonization is, is clearly um, an issue um, uh, and, uh, and does cause um, uh, you know, differential pressures to arise um, within um, groups. Um, you tend to get dragged down um, to the lowest common denominator, um, uh, the, 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 the company with the, you know, if there are more than one um, opco within the group, um, that are material, um, and you have one um, that has more draconian director's duties um, than um, than the others. Then that tends to be um, what drives um, the process, because um, the process becomes about accommodating those directors um, and their concerns, um, and um, and so some level of harmonisation um, would clearly be. Um, a nice thing to have um, in that uh, you know, everybody would be um, on a level playing field. Um, I mean, I, th I think that there's there's a long way to go before uh, I think we ever get to that point. Um, I mean, if we think back to the, um, the question about um, what potentially drives um, deals away from uh, schemes of arrangement in a sort of post-Brexit world, um, it seems to me that the, 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 the biggest threat really is, um, is a completely harmonized um, European process. And I think that would then have to include um, harmonization um, of directors' duties. Um, that's obviously not going to happen um, imminently, um, although it's a logical step at a point um, for um, the EU um, if you're going to, if they're going to make good on all the aspirations around banking union, capital markets union, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm on that issue. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a bit, be, it's a bit illogical to then have, yeah. you know, potentially wildly different um, directors' duties um, in, in different jurisdictions. Now, I mean, the US has survived with that. The directors' duties are not, you know, in in one state are not necessarily the same. Um, as as in another, um, although I think that the, the degree of variety um, is is different in kind and in quality um, in the US. 
Um, so it, it's clearly an issue, um, and and I think that that would be a logical thing for legislators to address at, at a point. But I, I, they've probably got other things to worry about though before they get to that. But I think it's a logical next step. It's a logical next step, but uh, as we all know, sometimes logical next steps so they take forever <laughs> to materialize. So let's see. Well, I think we need to wrap this up. Uh, time is over. Thank you very much. Thank you, Antonio. Thank you, Bruce, for your views and for your kind availability and to be with me and with us today here in this webinar. Thanks for the audience to, for attending and thanks for everyone who helped to organize this webinar, uh, Rebecca and Alice in, in particular. Um, for those of you new to Reorg, remember, we're a global provider of credit intelligence data and analytics for law firms, investors, and advisors. And if you have any question, please email customersuccess at reorg.com. Remember, a replay of this webinar will be available on the webinars and podcast page within 24 hours for uh, our customers. And uh, the only thing I want to say now is thank you again. And I hope to see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you very Ciao. much. Bye. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. You can find all our podcasts on the reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next Friday.